Hey, 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 y'all, just real quick before we play this episode. But if you're considering applying for the 2025, oh my gosh, 2025 cohort of Being With, which is my year-long immersive training program for professionals who support and work with parents, I want you to head over to robingobel.com slash being with right now and get your name on the waiting list. We're going to do applications and registration a little differently this year because of the already overwhelming interest in the 2025 cohort. So we're going to open applications up first only to folks on the waiting list. That means in order to be one of our early applicants, we need you to sign up on that waiting list before June 25th. RobinGobel.com slash being with, and I'll get that link down in the show notes as well. Alrighty, here's the episode. Hello, hello. Welcome back to part three of a six-part series on attachment. Last week, parts one and two looked first at the basics of attachment and then at secure attachment. We kicked off this month with a lovely interview with Bethany Saltman, author of Strange Situation, part memoir, part biography on attachment scientist Mary Ainsworth. So if you haven't already, We definitely want to go back and listen to all of those episodes. Today, we will be looking more closely at what attachment researchers have labeled insecure, anxious attachment. I'm Robin Goble, and welcome to the Parenting After Trauma podcast, where I take the science of being relationally, socially, and behaviorally human and translate that for parents of kids who have experienced trauma. I'm a psychotherapist with over 15 years of experience working with kids who have experienced trauma and their families. I'm also a self-diagnosed brain geek and relationship freak. I study the brain kind of obsessively and even teach the science of interpersonal neurobiology in a certificate program. I started this podcast on a whim with the intention to get free, accessible support to you as fast as possible. So that means this podcast isn't fancy and I do very little editing. Sometimes you'll hear a cockadoodle-doo in the background. If you love this episode, be sure to add Parenting After Trauma to your favorite podcast player and share with your friends and colleagues. Then head over to robingobel.com to discover all the free resources I have for you, including a free 45-minute masterclass on the three questions we should be asking ourselves when faced with challenging behavior in our kids. Is this child regulated, connected, feeling safe? You can find that at robingobel.com slash masterclass. And then while you're on my website, poke around, discover all the other free resources available, and then be sure to check out the club, a virtual community of connection, co-regulation, and of course, a little education for parents of kids impacted by trauma and the professionals who support them. A member of the club recently wrote this. I'm feeling so seen by other parents without actually even seeing them. My partner and I have been doing all of this hard work of connection for several years, but it seemed like nobody else was seeing the levels of behaviors in their family that we were. I didn't even realize how isolated we still felt because we didn't know any other parents seeing this. It makes you feel shame when you feel like you're the only one. Robin, thank you for this journey, this group, and letting us be seen by other parents. It helps me so much in my own journey to stay regulated, to know that it's not just me. 
Yes. I mean, that is my primary intention for the club is to surround y'all as caregivers and the professionals who are also caring for these caregivers and kids to create a space where people can be seen, have connection and co-regulation because that's what changes the brain. So the club opens for new members approximately every three months. And if you're listening to this podcast when it airs in June, 2021, the club is reopening at the end of this month. So snag a spot on that waiting list and you'll be the first to know when it opens. You can read all about it at robingobel.com slash the club. Okay, so before we look any closer at what attachment theory calls insecure attachment, we have to get just one thing straight, me and you. When we learn about, think about, read about attachment, it's impossible not to eventually think about your own. Like when I'm teaching about attachment, we sort of giggle, you know, and I ask, you know, how many of you you have parented, you know, have children? And typically a good amount of hands go up. And then I'll ask, how many of you ever were children? And then, of course, everybody's hands go up. And so it's impossible to learn about attachment, listen to things about attachment, explore attachment without some attachment neurobiology in our own minds to begin to come alive. So if you are listening to this podcast series and you notice that you resonate with some of the descriptions of insecure attachment, or even when we get to disorganized attachment next week, you might notice some of that beginning to come alive in you. And then what happens next is feelings of shame and embarrassment start to arise because we have a sense that these insecure, what we've labeled insecure attachment has a negative connotation. It means there's something wrong, or oftentimes we feel some embarrassment at the behaviors that can emerge from us because of their roots in insecure attachment. So again, let's just get one thing really clear. Insecure attachment isn't bad. Insecure attachment isn't wrong. Insecure attachment doesn't mean there's something wrong with you or your child. When we, what we call attachment styles is, is just implicit memory that allows babies who then of course become toddlers and kids and teens and, and then eventually adults to be in relationship in the least stressful way possible. Let me say that again. What we call attachment styles is just implicit memory that allows all of us to be in relationship in the least stressful way possible. And the organized categories of attachment, which includes secure and insecure, anxious and insecure avoidant, the baby develops an organized expectation and anticipation about what's going to happen next inside their attachment relationship. They figure out how to make sense of getting their needs needs met or not and not getting their needs met. And then they make sense, the way they make sense of that impacts their behavior, the way they organize emotion, and, and even the way that their brain develops. Organized attachment is about making sense 
of an experience and then adjusting in order to get our needs met in the best way possible. It's a brilliant adaptation. So attachment, like you might remember from both from the basics of attachment is about both physical and emotional survival, right? So babies first need their caregivers to be present and regulated in order to simply just keep them alive. But then babies also need their caregivers to be present and regulated so that the baby can become themselves. Babies figure out a way and attachment styles. And if you could see me, you'd see me doing air quotes at styles because I really don't like calling this a style. It just feels minimizing, but that's okay. Like I wasn't asked when coming up with a language that's used in attachment research. So attachment styles can be assessed and are relatively stable actually by the time an infant is 12 months old. So by the time an infant is 12 months old, they've figured out a way, a consistent way to get their caregivers to be as present and regulated as possible. And y'all, that is brilliant. Babies with caregivers with predominantly a secure state of mind when it comes to attachment don't have to work too hard at this. They just get to be themselves, right? A precious, miraculous baby that overflows with infinite worth and also who has a lot of needs. They get those needs met much of the time and learn that it's okay to have needs, that those needs will mostly get met and they can just be themselves, Hey, y'all, I'm interrupting the show super briefly. I want to make sure you've heard about the Families Rising Conference. Families Rising was, is formerly NACAC. So maybe you've been to the NACAC conference. You don't know that they're now Families Rising. So Families Rising is the formerly NACAC conference. It is one of my absolute most favorite conferences because of the super amazing people who attend. Everyone has this like shared mission for helping our most vulnerable kids and improving child welfare practices, listening to the voices of those with the lived experience. And I'm so, 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 so honored to be keynoting this year's conference. This conference is offered virtually every other year, which increases accessibility and people's ability to attend, especially affordably. And it is this year that it's virtual. So you can attend this conference from anywhere. Head to robingobel.com slash families rising to get all the details and send me a message if you're planning to attend. All right, back to the episode. Right. Okay. So one final note then before we start to really look at insecure, anxious attachment in adults, anxious attachment is referred to as preoccupied attachment for like simplicity's sake, consistency's sake to make a topic that's already confusing, a little bit less confusing. I'm going to just keep using the language anxious attachment, regardless of if I'm talking about adults or children. So what we've been talking about here with regards to attachment is how attachment's about babies having an expectation about what's going to happen when they have a need and then adjusting so that they can get that need met as often as possible. So again, y'all, this is brilliant. 
When a baby has an attachment need to be seen or soothed, safe and secure, like doctors uh, Siegel and Bryson talk about in their books, adults with a history of insecure, anxious attachment have a harder time making sense of those needs than caregivers with secure attachment. They may have a harder time tolerating the discomfort from their baby's cries, especially if that baby isn't quickly soothed. This can lead a caregiver to soothe their baby with some inconsistency. Their baby's needs might be felt as overwhelming, and they may struggle to regulate themselves enough that they can then regulate their baby. Or their attempts at soothing their baby can get coupled, like tied together with anxiety and stress. And then that baby learns that soothing is inconsistent and stressful. Because of their own attachment experiences and the accompanying neurobiology, the caregiver may feel their baby's distress and then begin to have their own distress. So in a way, the baby's distress and the caregiver's distress start to merge with each other. The baby then adapts to the fact that their needs cause stress in their parents or caregivers and tries to figure out a way to keep their caregiver from getting stressed because a stressed caregiver doesn't help the baby get their attachment needs met to feel seen and soothed, safe and secure. So do you see what I mean? I mean, this is truly brilliant. Our attachment adaptations are so brilliant and so protective and y'all This is true about your children, and this is true about yourself. So a baby's goal then, of course, is to be safe, seen, soothed, and secure. And they adjust themselves in a way that helps their caregiver provide those things as often as possible. When a baby has a caregiver with more insecure, anxious attachment, the baby doesn't receive as much present and soothing co-regulation as they need or as would be ideal. So these babies can remain dysregulated too long and for too often for them to develop the internalized regulation that is such a byproduct of secure attachment. So the irony then is that unfortunately, babies with insecure, anxious attachment might be experienced actually as more difficult to soothe. So they really need the soothing. They aren't developing the internalization that allows them to build the capacity to, you know, have some self-soothing. And yet they often are experienced as difficult to soothe. They really, really, really want to keep their caregiver close and emotionally present. And they have adapted by needing to be soothed a lot but also not receiving this soothing very well. So in a way, these babies remain actually very, very hopeful that they'll receive the co-regulation they need, and therefore they seek the co-regulation often, while also maintaining an expectation that they won't receive the co-regulation that they're looking for. So we're going to come back towards the end and talk more about this hope versus expectation. So just kind of hold on to that thought for a minute. Remember also from the basics of attachment, where I talked about how attachment has like these two complementary forces, both connection and autonomy. 
Babies who develop insecure, anxious attachment struggle with the autonomy side. As the baby explores the world or begins to kind of create separation from their caregiver, a caregiver with more insecurely anxious attachment has some distress arise about this autonomy. And the distress can cause the caregiver with more insecure, anxious attachment to have some subtle or sometimes not so subtle behaviors of dysregulation that really make it clear, oh, I'm uncomfortable with this exploration or with this autonomy. So the baby figures this out really quickly. And because their primary concern, of course, is keeping their caregiver really regulated so that they can experience being seen and secure, soothed and safe as much as possible. These babies can limit their exploration and pursuit of autonomy. So then as these babies grow, they become toddlers and then preschoolers that can demonstrate some difficulty in being separated from their caregiver. What's happened is that they haven't really developed an internalized sense of their caregiver, an internalized sense of being soothed so that they can turn to this internalization of their caregiver when their caregiver isn't actually there. And and then they also haven't developed a way to regulate themselves when they aren't receiving regulation from their caregiver because the neurobiology of that internalized co-regulation that results from consistently being soothed just hasn't had the opportunity to really like build and, and bloom. You may be noticing at this time of this podcast episode that insecure anxious attachment could feel a little confusing or kind of slippery to learn about, right? There's like almost this little bit of fuzziness as arises. And honestly, y'all, when I'm teaching about insecure anxious attachment, I have to be very deliberate about staying super like grounded and regulated. My mentor, Bonnie Badnock, and stay tuned for a podcast interview with Bonnie at the end of this month, describes that felt sense of anxious attachment as a bit of an emotional jungle. It's kind of chaotic and confusing, a little bit slippery. And remember I said at the beginning, that is very common when we're learning about attachment for those, you know, internalized pockets of, of attachment that we all have start to stir and come alive. And and we start to feel these experiences of attachment, like now in our own neurobiology, because almost with 100% certainty, we've all had experiences of insecure attachment. Even those of us who had primarily secure attachment experiences and, and who had caregivers with predominantly secure states of mind didn't ever, of course, experience perfect attunement, perfect parenting, perfectly consistent, always experiences of co-regulation. None of us experience being seen, soothed, secure, and safe a hundred percent of the time. So we all have implicit memory of the different experiences of attachment. Learning about insecure anxious attachment can feel fuzzy because the experience of insecure anxious attachment is fuzzy. It's a little confusing, a little unpredictable, a little like, ah, this doesn't quite make sense, but let's just go with it. Right. Y'all, this is seriously such a brilliant adaptation. I mean, it's, honestly mind-blowing to me how quickly after birth babies are adjusting their behavior and their nervous systems to get their needs met. Babies with insecure, anxious attachment try to meet their caregiver's needs 
so that their caregiver can be regulated enough to then be present so they can meet the baby's needs. If a baby can't resolve, I'm sorry, if the baby can't receive the external regulation that they need from their caregiver, they're going to adjust themselves so that at least their caregiver can be present. And this allows the baby to be seen. If I were going to create a Venn diagram of insecure, anxious attachment, and if you head over to my blog, you can see this Venn diagram of insecure, anxious attachment. But if I were going to create a Venn diagram, it it would have two circles, right? It would have a circle of you and a circle of me. And the overlapping part of these two circles in the Venn diagram would be almost in totality of the two circles. Like they'd overlap almost to the point where you couldn't even tell there was two. Okay. So the overlap of the you and the me is this we space in relationship. It's how, it's how you and me come together to create a we. And so in insecure, anxious attachment, the we space overlaps a lot. There is very little me without you and very little you without me. So what this means though, is that the baby isn't receiving the co-regulation experience it needs in order to build their capacity for self-regulation because the dysregulation can't be kept separate, right? The, The baby's dysregulation prompts dysregulation in an adult that the adult struggles to regulate themselves. And so the baby's co-regulation and the adult's co-regulation merge. The caregiver then struggles to co-regulate the baby, of course, because they're dysregulated themselves. This leads to a baby who develops into a toddler and a preschooler, a child, a teen, eventually adult, who unfortunately has a limited capacity for self-regulation and also actually even for self. And they tend to really seek regulation externally. They struggle then also to have like a solid sense of identity and self that isn't emerged with who they are in relationship with other people. They struggle with the autonomy side of attachment and also can, can experience regular discontentedness from the connection side of attachment because the connection doesn't always feel truly regulating. These babies and kids are often described as clingy or as like a bottomless pit. Their parents feel as though they can never make their child happy or meet their needs. So again, I want to emphasize this is brilliant. Attachment adaptations are brilliant, but they are, of course, not without consequence. There are obvious challenges that accompany an inner working model of insecure, anxious attachment. These kids have this desperate pull towards being connected to the point of having really blurry energetic boundaries about like, where do I end and you begin? Yet they also have an unmet innate need to develop autonomy. These kids have limited capacity for self-regulation and rely on getting their regulation from others or from the environment. Or another adaptation can be that they become overly controlled. They can become kids that we might call controlling, needy, or clingy, yet often discontent. It doesn't feel like their needs are being met with satisfaction. But again, look at the brilliance of this. They're looking for opportunities to get the co-regulation they need by having a lot of needs. This is so, so, so smart. Unfortunately, it just doesn't often work out that way because the neurobiology of insecure, anxious attachment 
Lee's leads kids to behave in ways that matches their expectation, not their hope. So let's look at that here for a minute. The hope is to be seen, soothed, safe, and secure. The expectation, though, is the opposite, that they won't get that. Because of the nature of implicit memory and behavior, babies, who then obviously become toddlers, preschoolers, kids, teens, adults, evoke from their caregivers what they expect, not what they hope. It's actually true that we all do this. This is just a a normal way of like human behavior and human interaction. If I'm expecting that I won't receive the co-regulation I need, I usually don't. I might even behave in ways that adults find off-putting, irritating, and annoying. Ultimately, this leads to exactly the opposite of what I'm hoping for, but exactly what I'm expecting. As we keep exploring the insecure styles of attachment, including avoidant attachment in the next podcast episode and then disorganized attachment next week, try to simultaneously hold in mind these two truths. One, attachment adaptations actually are brilliant. And number two, they also can change. And it's okay to recognize that even though they're brilliant and we can honor them, that it would be better for the neurobiology if they could shift. It would lead more to actual needs, true needs getting met. Attachment is quite stable throughout our lives unless we are lucky enough to get into close relationship with someone who's able to offer us experiences of secure attachment or if we are lucky enough to become aware of our attachment expectations and then start to put in the hard work to shift them. So that's another contradiction that attachment is quite stable and attachment also can change. We just have to be on the lookout for how that's possible. There is always, always hope. I promise. I hope that you'll be back for the next episode where we'll explore more thoroughly insecure avoidant attachment. When this six-part series is done and this episode marks the halfway point, I have a pretty special surprise waiting for you. So if you haven't already, hit subscribe on the podcast and make sure that all of the podcast episodes will be appearing in your podcast player. Thank you for taking the time to connect with me today and for caring for kids impacted by trauma. I am so, so, so grateful for you. If you're new here, I want you to again, hit subscribe on this podcast in your podcast player, and then head over to robingobel.com slash masterclass, where you can watch a free three-part video series on what behavior really is and how to change it. Please take a moment to share this podcast with your colleagues, friends, grandparents, teachers, everyone. I mean, the sooner the whole world understands the neurobiology of being relationally, socially, and behaviorally human, the sooner our kids will live in a world that sees them for who they really are. Completely amazing and sometimes struggling. Thanks for tuning in today. I'll see you next time. Are you ending this episode with maybe a big sigh of relief? Like, Yes, finally. 
someone gets me and my kids. But also maybe a sense of like, okay, but now what? All right, y'all, I've got lots of possible now what's. If you want to connect with me directly, like pick my brain, have access to me almost every day, not to mention hundreds of other parents from around the world who totally get what it's like to be you, then you're going to want to join us in the club. We have monthly live events, including groups for siblings of dysregulated kids, a huge video library with something like 80 or 90 videos, plus transcripts and certificates of completion. Plus, of course, a very active forum that I'm participating in every single day. We open for new members periodically. So go check robingobel.com slash the club. If we aren't open now, you can put yourself on the waiting list and I'll let you know the moment we open for new members. That's robingobel.com slash the club. Now, if you're a professional and you want to strengthen your capacity to work with the families of kids with big baffling behaviors and vulnerable nervous systems, plus use all of my materials, including a 12-module course that follows raising kids with big baffling behaviors, plus be included in an online searchable directory so families all over the world could find you, then you're looking for Being With, which is my year-long immersive training program that runs January through December. So you'll want to go to robingobel.com slash beingwith, read all about it. And if you're interested, put yourself on that waiting list too. Now, if you just maybe need a little extra connection and co-regulation, but don't feel like you need to join the club, then you can just keep listening to my podcast. Or you could go subscribe to my Start Here podcast, and that'll give you 10 episodes in order that will take you through cultivating a great foundation of parenting with regulation, connection, and felt safety. That's at robingobel.com slash start here. You have to go there. You can't just find it in your podcast app. Or you could get yourself a copy of Raising Kids with Big Baffling Behaviors, paper book, audio book, ebook. You can get that anywhere books are sold. Or you could just head to my website download one of my very many free resources. I keep them all really easy to access at robingobel.com slash free resources. Webinars, masterclasses, eBooks, infographics, all sorts of stuff. Go check it out. See what of those things could be supportive of you or maybe to the other adults in your life who are helping support you and your child. There are just so many ways that you and I could be more connected and you can get the amount of co-regulation and support that you need. If it feels like a lot to remember, all you have to do is go to robingobel.com and take your time clicking around, seeing what I got there. I am so, so glad you and I are connected now and I can't wait to be with you again soon in our next episode of The Baffling Behavior Show. Bye-bye, y'all.